0: All right, if you have a Bible, open it up. If you would, please, to Mark chapter 14. We're going to deal with the first 11 verses of Mark's gospel. Uh, 11 verses of Mark's gospel, chapter 14, that is. I'm going to do it. I'm I'm going to ask you a teaser question. One of these questions you don't answer out loud. You answer on the inside. Um, but I really want you to pay attention to the question and I really want you to try to answer it, okay? Because sometimes I ask a question and I can see you gloss over, it's okay. Um, This one is important, okay? How would you describe the intensity of your devotion to Jesus? Are you thinking? Let me put it another way. How radical of a worshiper are you? We've been plowing through this, this gospel for eight months now. We've got a couple more to finish. And uh, we have seen the most awesome, most beautiful, most intense display of who Jesus is. We've seen him presented, as Mark does, as this friend of sinners. In fact, he surrounds himself with losers and people who are on the outside and really broken, broken stories. We've seen this Jesus um, not put off by the sick, the kind that society throws away. Jesus runs to them and he surrounds himself with these people. We have uh, seen that Jesus is fearless when it comes to dealing with evil. He has an authority over demons and the supernatural that no one has ever heard before or ever seen before. We have seen this Jesus not embarrassed by his associations with prostitutes and notoriously evil people. In fact, he's been accused of being one himself. He goes to parties with these folks, and they've labeled him, and he's being judged for it. We have seen this Jesus who is not put off by weaknesses. We have seen this Jesus who doesn't... He isn't overwhelmed by your struggle or your failures We've seen this Jesus not ashamed at all to call you his. In fact, the scripture says he loves you so much that he has called you a son and daughter. So I'm going to go back to the question How do you respond to someone like that? What do you do? What do you feel? How intense is your devotion? What what words would you use to describe it? Would you use words like, oh, it's radical, it's passionate, it's extravagant, like I'm nuts for Jesus? Or would it be more an American version of response to Jesus? No, it's it's predictable. It's careful. It's it's safe. It's measured because I'm a conservative. How would you to find your affections for Christ. The reason why I set this up is because we're going to be forced to deal with that issue in this story today. I think think you're going to be familiar with the story, but if you're not, then get ready because you're going to be forced to look at a version of worship that is really, really foreign to us. A kind of worship that you might just describe as all in, crazy all in, okay? And and so um, here's how Mark presents this story to us. He does it by telling us a story of two different people and two different responses to this Jesus who we've been learning about. Two people, by the way, who have heard the same messages that Jesus has preached. Two people who have seen him touch the sick and watch them healed. They could spit in the earth and put it on their eyes and they would see again or take a dead man and raise him to new life. Take lepers and their skin is now white as snow again. This is the Jesus that we've seen and that these two people have watched clearly. They've seen him with authority confront the demonic. They've heard him preach this thing called the good news, the gospel. This wonderful story that God came for sin and for sinners. We have, uh, and both of these two people saw his compassion and his love, and they saw before their very eyes the transformative power of his touch. Everywhere he went, people were different. Both people saw it, yet both people reacted totally different. The two people I'm talking about, John tells us, not Mark, but John tells us, one is Mary and the other is Judas. Two extreme responses to having perceived and seen and heard all those things that Jesus was, was about. Now, before I read this particular story, let me set the stage a little bit. We are beginning chapter 14, which is the longest chapter in Mark's gospel, 70. Two verses and chapter 14 is is kind of the descent into the darkness chapter. This is the this is a chapter that begins with the betrayal and works its way through a, an arrest and a trial and a and a crucifixion ultimately for Jesus. But if you want a, a theme for chapter 14, just remember that it's about the abandonment of Christ. He is now left alone when we're done with this chapter. By the end of this chapter, what started in chapter. Three of this gospel, when the Pharisees saw Jesus and were threatened by his work and his words, they began a plan to destroy him, okay? This will now have included and grown to the place where all the leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, right? The Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees are all against Jesus. The political rulers, Rome, they're against Jesus. We're going to see that in this story. And the people who followed him and cried out just a few days ago, Hosanna, they're going to reject him. By the end of this chapter, we're going to see even his disciples leave him high and dry. By the time we get to the cross, even the Father turns his back. This is about the abandonment of Christ. And the reason why he's rejected is for us. Total shame, total scorn, and abandonment for sin. So I want you to capture that in your head as we read this story. And I know it's familiar, but let's pretend like we've never heard it before. Let it, let it affect us that way. We're going to start in verse 1, chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover, and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let's pray and ask for the Spirit's help. God, I thank you for this story, the depiction of worship that, to us, looks a little bit over the top. But clearly there's a sermon in here from you to us about the things that move us, the things that we're in love with. God, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would help us really confront the issue of our heart and what we love and help us love Jesus more, I pray. In his name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Let let me build a little context for us here. Um, I told you when we started the gospel of Mark that what you have to understand when you're reading through Mark's narrative is that Mark is not interested necessarily in chronological order. Mark is not writing a sequence of events. These things happened, and they happened relatively in the time of when they happened. But Mark is really good at taking events and collecting them in a series of thoughts to teach A message, okay? So in this particular bucket, these events don't happen in the order that we see them here. If you go to John's account of the story, you're going to find that it shows up in a little bit different. I'm going to make a point about that in in, in a second. But what he's doing, just imagine this. There is this wonderful, beautiful, awesome story of affections and devotion and love and worship. And it's set into this parentheses of rejection by the leaders and ultimately a rejection by, by Judas. So anyway, um, here's where we're going with this. We're going to look at this extravagant worship. That's Mark's point to highlight it. And so John's gospel tells us where this or when this took place. In chapter 12 of verse 1, he says six days before the Passover, which sounds different than what Mark has said. And and I would agree that it is different. If you want to see the chronological order of this whole thing, in actuality, this event that's happening in, in Simon the leper's house takes place three to th- four days before verses one and two. That's the sequence of this story. But, but Mark has just placed it here to, to highlight it. And I think many times you could end up with variables in, in timing and say, what's the big deal? It doesn't really matter. But I think there's something that matters about the timing of Jesus here in this time prior to the Passover. And I think in order to understand why this is important and The timing of it is essential, is that we need to understand the Passover. So I'm not going to take a lot of time, but I have to assume that some of you know it, about it, know the analogies of it. Some of you might not. So let me give to you, those of you who don't know really what the Passover is about, a a quick synopsis of it, okay? Exodus chapter 12. You don't have to turn there. A story about God's people. Israel. Israel. God's chosen people have now been enslaved under Pharaoh for 400 years, and they're crying out to God for, for, for liberty. God hears them, and he calls this awkward leader named Moses to go and to tell Pharaoh, it's time to let him go. They're my people, okay? But you know the story, probably. Probably some of you have heard it, that when he goes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh would not listen. And so then begins, God commences a series of plagues to convince Pharaoh that he needs to listen to God and let his people go, right? A series of things. So lots of plagues that included the River Nile turning to blood and gnats and flies and frogs and all sorts of things like that. The first of the livestock dying, boils and hail and locusts and on and on it goes. The 10th plague and the most and the convincing plague to get Pharaoh to let his people go was when God pronounced that the angel of death was coming through Egypt and he was going to kill off the firstborn of everyone. But God told Moses, Moses, you need to do something for me, and you need to tell the people something for me. Tell them all to go get a spotless, unblemished lamb. Tell them to sacrifice and spill that lamb's blood. Take a, take a branch from a hyssop bush and paint the doorposts with his blood. So when the angel of death comes by, he sees that you're covered by his blood, and you will live. Now, do I have to clarify the illustration? Much. I, I hope I hope not. If the point of this Passover, if you're covered by this lamb's blood, you're going to live. When we started this study eight months ago, I took you to John's account of this gospel when John the Baptist was seeing Jesus come towards him, and he just called him out right there in front of everybody. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away sin of the world. That's how we got introduced to Jesus. From the very beginning, he was the Lamb of God. From the very beginning, he came to die. He came to give his life. That's why he came. He came to spill his blood so that we won't have to die. That's the point of this wonderful illustration. It's perfect that it's here. It's essential that it's wrapped, this story is wrapped in this sequence of time because in this story, there is a divine picture being painted for us, a picture of who Jesus is. He is the Lamb and what he did... He did die in our place. His blood saves us, right? Now, that's the significance of the timing of the story, but, but it's placed in a really unusual setting. It's placed in a setting of a murder plot and a betrayal, like almost unspeakable kind of betrayal, all right? In in other words, Mark Mark has taken this wonderful story of love and devotion and surrounded it in a story of hatred. And so before we stop to look at the amazing expression of worship and love, I thought we should look at the haters for a little bit and see how we got where we got. Verse 1 and 2, just to remind you again what's going on here. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to... uh, arrest him by stealth and to kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar. Okay, Mark tells us right here in verses one and two that the haters are the religious leaders. Seems unusual for them to go after Jesus, but we've been talking about this for weeks now, weeks and weeks about what their problem was and why they were in such angst to try to get rid of Christ. What explains their hatred is that they were threatened by Jesus. Everything Jesus said, everything he did was a threat to, to them. They were posed to the people as the most godly of all people. And Jesus came in and said, no, let me tell you the truth. You're a hypocrite and you're a liar and you're full of dead men's bones. That's who you are. Now tell me how long it would take you as a religious leader to hear that sermon being preached in the crowds and you not feel a little itchy, okay? So they're a little itchy about Jesus and what he said. They're threatened by it. They claim to be concerned about the people as their leaders, but clearly we know from Jesus' assessment, they were more concerned about themselves, right? They, uh, Jesus called him out on those things. I think they were jealous of Christ because everywhere, pe- everywhere Jesus went, people followed him. When he said things, it was kind of it. People just kind of walked away. There was no other wisdom than his wisdom. He won every argument, finished every story, was the point of all of it, and they couldn't handle it. I think there was this growing animosity and jealousy in his heart. I think they wanted to get rid of him, and they hated him because he was hurting business. Jesus is bad for business. And here's why. Because when he marches into the temple and he sees them turning this place of worship into a place of profit, he starts throwing things over and points out to the people, this is not the way it should be. You want to ruin profit margins, just do that. So they're ready to have him done. That's why this is urgent. That's why this is happening. It's interesting to me, it seems to me, implied in the first couple of verses, like, okay, we've got to do this. We've been talking about destroying him for a long time now. It's time to be done with him. And so there's an urgency to what, what they're doing. I think it's simple to understand that Jesus is having an unbelievably untold influence on the masses. I mean, he comes into Jerusalem on Passover week. Hosanna. He's coming in the name of the Lord. Now, who, what Pharisee, what scribe, what Sadducee could handle that? Who could follow that? So he's having huge influence. The Jewish historian Josephus records that um, during the Passover week in Jerusalem and the surrounding communities, up to 3 million people would gather for the Passover meal. Okay? So if you're just thinking like a religious leader and you're concerned about his message and concerned about what he says and his influence, you just think more people more opportunity more influence bad idea so it'd be better before he got in this situation where the masses could follow him to get rid of him the text also tells us they're trying to be really sneaky about it and and it tells us specifically one reason why they're sneaky about it and that is because they're convinced that if they go after Jesus in this crowd at this time they'll riot we just heard them usher him in his Hosanna. We just heard that. So if we go after him, they're going to have a problem with us. So we better keep this on the down low. And by the way, if you're a religious leader plotting murder, well, that doesn't look good on your resume. So you got keep to it, keep it down. You don't want to do that. Um, so they've got to they've keep it a secret. Now, we have seen for months now that the leaders of Israel want Jesus gone. Sad, bad, and no surprise. But what is scandalous and almost inconceivable is that someone on the inside like Judas would betray his Lord. Something unbelievable. Verses 10 and 11, look what it says. When Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them, and then they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. How does that happen? After all the sermons, all the miracles, all the liberty, like prisoners set free kind of stuff, dead people coming to life and blind people seeing and people loving and caring for others. How does this happen? How does Judas go, okay, I noticed that, but it's time for him to go? Let me give you a couple of thoughts, all right? Luke's account and John's account of this a uh, particular story tells us that Satan had a role to play in it, and, and I'm going to use a really old illustration, okay? Anybody remember Flip Wilson? What was his line? The devil made me do it, right? This is not a devil made me do it scenario for, for Judas, even though the text tells us that Satan was involved, and in fact, it even tells us at the end of kind of the scenario that Satan kind of possessed him, okay? What you have to understand here is, is more like a Genesis 3 moment for Judas, in genesis three after, after in the, before the fall, just before this all happens, it was Satan who came to Eve and Adam and suggested that God was a liar that god couldn 't be trusted, and there 's a better way. All Satan has to do is to convince us not to trust God, and what do we do? We choose sin and rebellion. all he had to do to Judas was suggest for a second that this isn 't right and this isn 't good, and so ultimately Judas planned to betray him. Now we see also in john 's account and in Luke's account, that Satan eventually kind of possessed him unto the point where which he committed suicide. Never, did, never be forgiven for that decision, okay? But it wasn't Satan who made him. Mark chose to do it. In fact, I think, or, or Judas chose to do it. Mark, I think, just by the fact that he doesn't blame it on Satan here, is simply telling the, kind of the sequence of it all. It was premeditated for Judas, and he did it for profit, John tells us that he was the treasurer who liked to line his own pockets with the money of the group, and 30 pieces of silver looks pretty good, and so Mark kind of calls Judas out for those reasons, and some have suggested, I'm not suggesting that this is absolutely true, but some have suggested that Judas was more of a zealot than everybody else, and he was in it with Jesus until he figured out Jesus wasn't the political ruler that he hoped him to be, and once he figured out he was really talking about sin and saving people from their sins, he was out. I'm only in here because we need to take over from Rome. That's why I'm here. And so some have suggested there's lots of reasons why Judah, Judas uh, bailed. But either way, whatever your conclusions are, Ju- Judas was not a victim. Okay? Uh, James Edwards, in his commentary on, on Mark's gospel, said this, Judas is not a victim of circumstances or a pawn dominated by greater forces. He is a sovereign moral agent who freely chooses evil in handing Jesus over. Now that phrase in Mark's gospel, handing Jesus over, is one word in the Greek that combines two essential truths of Jesus' passion, the freely chosen evil of humanity and the overarching providence of God. Now listen to this last line, divine grace uses even human evil for its saving purposes. You and I can never look at God and say, man, it's not my fault. Devil made me do it. No, no. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. If you're listening, my guess is you'll probably follow the lies, just like Judas. But you're accountable for your own choices, just like Judas did here. Okay. Now, with that as the backdrop, this hatred story of the leaders of Israel and an insider like Judas we have here between verses 3 and 9 the most significant act of extravagant worship I believe ever written down or recorded. So much so that Jesus said this in verse 9. Wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Something unusual about what she did was so significant. Here we are 2,000 years later fulfilling that very prophecy. We're talking about her. John tells us it's, it's Mary. Mark leaves her unnamed. So why? This is the only person that Jesus made a promise like that to, so why her? Why just her? What's the, what's the big deal about her offering? Well, a couple thoughts. Um, whenever you meet this woman, as we read this story... You can't encounter Mary without being profoundly affected by her devotion. Something was different about her. In fact, every time you see her mentioned in the scriptures, where is she? Feet of Jesus. She is listening and she's learning and she's loving the Lord. Everywhere you see her, to such a degree, her sister thinks she's lazy. Okay? She's in love with Christ. Christ. But the most significant reason of all that Jesus points her out for all history, for us to remember, and the reason why we're talking about it right now is because she appears to be the very first person ever to understand that the gospel comes through suffering. Jesus has said it how many times? As far as we know, recorded so many times already, but my guess is it happened on team more times that were not recorded for us when Jesus told his disciples, hey, just so you know, I'm coming to die. I am the Lamb of God. I'm coming to give my life. And without my life, you can't live. And I would imagine he preached that message so much, so so much. But somehow, the only person listening was was Mary. Okay, I get it. I, I understand that he's coming to die. She's the first person, as far as we can tell from the gospel account, to perceive the mystery that the gospel, this good news, comes through Jesus' sacrifice. That it is good news. In fact, I think it's not only implied but pretty explicit in verse 8 when Jesus says, she's anointed my body before burial. She knows, she knows exactly what she's doing and why she's doing it. She knows why I'm here. I'm about to die. And so uh, Mary understood because he was about to die that she might not have much time left to express her affections for Jesus. I don't know when this is going down. Probably soon. There's an urgency in it for her and so she races to do an extravagant act, and from the lips of Jesus himself comes one of the greatest acts of extravagant worship possible. Now, here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I simply want to define what extravagant worship is because it's, it's one way for us to just read a story about a woman who had a perspective and a proximity to Jesus, and we would simply say, well, I, I wasn't there, and I, if I saw those miracles, maybe I would too, or lots of reasons to give ourselves an excuse to be measured in our worship, okay? I want to unpack what's obvious in this text about what is an expression of, of extravagant worship. Let me give you four things. Here's the first one. <clears throat> extravagant worship is available it's available. I want you to notice, and it probably just skipped over it, who's in this party? Okay? Verse 3 says, Simon the leper. Now, obviously, by this time, Simon is probably a former leper, but Simon, nevertheless, had a life of being ostracized. If you were unclean, that meant you couldn't relate to your own family. You couldn't relate to the synagogue. You couldn't relate in society. You couldn't relate in business. You were as clearly an outsider as possible. That's why that that thought of a leper is such a perfect depiction of sin and how it separates us from God. We couldn't be more far removed because of our sinful leprosy. And yet Simon the leper, former leper, he didn't know anybody but sinners. Only people who would talk to him were people like but John tells us, Lazarus is there, former dead guy, okay, <laughs> who were also unclean. Don't touch a dead body. Lazarus, Martha and Mary's brother is there. Martha and Mary are there. W- women in that culture don't normally belong in men's social gatherings. They're outsiders. I think it's very poignant that Mark doesn't even tell us who the woman is just to make the point even clearer that these people are odd, and they don't belong here together, and they're outsiders. So stop for a second. Isn't that the point we've been making, or Mark's been making, or Jesus has been making from the very beginning, that he's come for outsiders? Isn't that the point? Isn't that the point that he came for the outcasts and for sinners and people with no hope, people who have God-sized needs? Isn't that what he's been doing this whole time? This is a perfect illustration of another one of how God has come for us. Come for however big a problem you may have. You know, I've said a lot of bad things about religion. Let me say another one. Um, I think it has done so much damage to the understanding of God because for generations, for generations, it has convinced the world that what you can do, your problem is big enough for you that you can sort it out or fix it or adjust it or go to church or pray or whatever, and, and the gospel doesn't let you have that. It says your, your, your problem is bigger than you. Your need is a holiness. Your need is salvation, and you can't fix this on your own. So Jesus only came for people who know they can't, not for people who think they need adjustments. So let me just listen for a second. I don't know who's here, really. I mean, I see similar faces, and my eyes let me see about 20 feet away. So I see Joel. I see people. But I'm convinced there are people who might have kicked the tires for the first Sunday. And you walked in, like, with shaky knees because you're convinced this is the last place you belong. That somehow what you've done or where you've been or what you think about or what you struggle with is not... Jesus. Jesus wants people who who clean up their act, who look good on the outside, but that is not farther from the truth. The gospel is this story. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, nothing excludes you from the forgiveness of Christ. You're the reason he came, for outsiders, every one of us. Sinners who look like sinners and sinners who pretend not to be. He came for us. Extravagant worship is available. He came to rescue us, no matter how much of an outsider you think you are. Here's the second thing about extravagant worship. Verses three through five. Extravagant worship is vulnerable. While they were he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at a table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For the ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Got a question for you. What, what limits your worship? I, I think this woman could have been justified if she simply did what everybody else is inclined to do. Everyone's inclined to do just enough. Don't go crazy for Jesus. She would have been justified if she worried about what people think about what she was about to do. She would have thought, man, you're not going to like me. I'm a woman. This is expensive. She could have done lots of thoughts, but she doesn't. What she does is she goes for it. She loves Jesus in the most extreme way possible. And for that, she gets attacked by the insiders. Indignant. That word is anger. They're mad at her. They're mad at, at, at her actions, okay? They consider her actions, the word that Mark uses here is wasted, it means ruined, for nothing. Are you kidding me? You poured out this ointment over Jesus because you're preparing him for burial, but that's a waste of time, Mary. So she's judged for that, she's accused for that. John tells us that Judas is super, super helpful when he points out that the value of her waste. You know, it could have been sold for 300 denarii. That's the equivalent of a year's worth of wages. So it could be, in our day, a $50,000 number. She broke a flask of ointment worth your year's salary. And she gets judged for not being smart enough to know that there's something better to do with that money. Okay, let me ask you a question. How many of you in here have ever been falsely accused? Of anything. Really? I'm the only one? <laughs> Everybody, right? They miss they misjudge your motives, or they don't know the whole story and they make an accusation. Okay, that's true of all of us. Everyone's experienced that. Okay, let me ask you this question. When was the last time you were consistently charged with loving Jesus too much? I'm fifty-four. No one has ever come to my office and said, Tim, I've got a problem with you. They do that, but they do something else. <laughs> They've never said, you're too passionate for Jesus. You love him too much. You're too crazy radical for Christ. And this is no judgment on you, but I've never heard him say it about you either. <laughs> when is the last time anybody said you went too far with Christ? Just listen to this. Extravagant worship almost always leads to criticism. Almost always. Because you're going to say you went too far, you did too much, you're not thinking it through. And just to remind you here, it's not just Judas who's making the accusation. Peter, James, John, they're all there. All the apostles are there. And they're indignant, the text tells us, at her actions, okay? One writer put it this way, true love never calculates Genuine worship is never measured. Authentic affection never asks how little can I give and still meet the acceptable standards of decency. True heartfelt adoration never asks what is the minimum I can give and get by with, okay? If we're gonna love extravagantly, we gotta deal with the criticism. If you're gonna go crazy for Jesus, somebody's gonna think you're nuts and that's okay. So um, extravagant worship is vulnerable. It's not only that, it's available. We said that first, but here's the third thing. Extravagant worship is beautiful. That's the words that Jesus used when he told them to be quiet. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Verse 6. Why was it beautiful? Because it was extreme. And it was total. She didn't take the flask of ointment and pop the cork and dribble out a few drops that she thought was worth it. She crushed it. She took the very worth of the object itself and destroyed it for the worth of Christ. That's why it's beautiful. Held nothing back. Silly offering. And Jesus said, that's it. Now, here's the critic's position. And by the way, sad to say, it shows up in church sometimes. What she did was too far. Because isn't there a passage in here about stewardship somewhere? Isn't there one about, like, wise with your finances or wise with things? Isn't there something about being a right steward? Isn't there something about being concerned about a reputation? And isn't that a little bit undignified? Listen, after all, Mary, didn't you let down your hair? That other text in John tells us she let down her hair and rubbed his feet with her hair. Isn't that a little undignified? You don't belong here, Mary. Jesus said no that's that that's beautiful and it's so beautiful it goes down in history By the way she's not the first to be accused of being silly or stupid or foolish I don't have the time to talk about it but second Samuel chapter 6 David the king was known as a man after God's own heart was ushering the ark of the covenant back into Jerusalem and he's dancing in his underwear okay And he is being accused by his wife of being an idiot. And his response was, when it comes to God and the affections of God, I'll be even more undignified than this. There is not a limit to my lack of um, concern of that. So there's some truth in that. There is a huge chasm that exists between those in this party and this woman. All they can see is the waste. All she can see is Jesus. Do you see the difference Okay, let me ask you a question as we kind of try to illustrate that particular point. The beauty of radical, extravagant offerings. What do you think about when we gather to worship? This is one aspect of kind of our expression. We call ourselves the people of God. We show up at a particular time on a particular day. And we do something corporately called worship and ascribing to God worth. And we use songs and things um, in a service to do that. What do you think about Words on a screen, songs and tunes and textures that you like or may not like, concern yourself with instrumentation, whether it was good or bad, and let's say you're all loving it and you're just really enthralled by what we do, or maybe not, as long as you're a spectator, and you're coming to calculate whether it's good or whether it's bad or whether it's worth your energies or not, you are never going to be an extravagant worshiper. You're never going to see Jesus. You know, there's a variety in what we do. A massive subjectiveness that God is not even concerned with. He's concerned with your affections. If If I was up here banging pot pans together and I meant it for Jesus, we've got enough in Jesus to worship him forever. Right? There's one little... Example. One last point about extravagant worship. Extravagant worship is affordable. Now, I was hunting for words, okay? I couldn't find another word. So I'm going to have to define what I mean by affordable because it sounds kind of the point of this passage. Verse 8 simply says, Jesus said she has done what she could. Extravagant worship is affordable. Here's what I mean. Okay? You might make the mistake of looking at her offering, the, the magnitude of her offering, the radicalness of her offering, this $50,000 offering to Jesus in worship, and you say in your heart, I could never do that. I don't have enough to do that. I, I, I have this or this constriction on my life or I don't have enough. Like even having a jar worth a perfume worth 50000 is not something I even have access to. I can't, I can't be extravagant like that. Well, then you're missing the point completely, okay? And I need you to listen to my next sentence and not chastise me until I'm done, okay? Mary didn't sacrifice a lot to worship Jesus. Here's what I want you to understand. Mary simply saw the beauty and the worth of Christ as more satisfying than anything else on the planet, that nothing she gave to Jesus seemed like a sacrifice. Do you understand If you're sitting there counting the pain of your offering, either in your giftedness and how you serve people or your money or what you give to a church, you're missing the point of worship. Jesus isn't beautiful enough for you. But when he is, you don't count costs. You don't consider the only way to explain her activity is she thought nothing but Jesus, overwhelmed by the forgiveness and love of Christ. She wasn't calculated, she was extreme okay? If you really see Jesus, you don't ask, what will it cost me? When you really know Jesus, you never ask, what will people think? If you've really been transformed by Christ, you don't lament sacrifice, you cherish it. And by the way, everybody sitting in this room has what Mary has, because Jesus said she gave what she had. That includes you and me. We all have that, right? I have what I have. And Mary simply gave what she had. You don't have to look at the story and go, well, it takes me out of it because I don't have stuff like that. You don't have to worry about that. It's affordable. You can do it. That's what Jesus says. And let me finish with this question. Would you like to experience Jesus like Mary did? I would. I would. There's been moments where I thought I was flirting with the edges, but only to fall back. I would love to be like this all the time. To really know him and enjoy him to such a degree that you're just ruined and wrecked for anything else. Like everything else looks just pale compared to Christ. Kind of what Paul says the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Well, if you're, if you're answering yes, if there's any affirmative in your heart at all to wanting to be like Mary in your expression of worship, then, and you're not there, then let me just give you a couple things to think about. Would you at least do yourself a favor and sit around this afternoon and take inventory of the things that distract you from that worship, okay? And look for things that compete. We all have competitors to the truth. Look for those things. And then the second thing I would ask you to do, and I've said it to you so many times, I hope you're not tired of it, chase him. You'll never be disappointed. The scriptures aren't complicated when they talk about how to find him. You find him in the scriptures. You find him in prayer, and you find him in the conversations with his people, okay? That's the context that we chase him. So if you want this kind of extravagant, radical, crazy, ridiculous, all-in kind of attitude towards Jesus, then eliminate the competition and chase after Christ. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the gospel message, the good news that Jesus came for outsiders, and that when our hearts are fully changed, when we really get that story, everything is a joy. Unto Christ our Savior we pray. Amen.